So I want to ask you a question. Do you like riddles? Yeah, I don't either. Oh, oh you said yeah. So, so let, me, let me give you a couple riddles, see if you know the answer. What always hurts but always helps? What always hurts but always helps? I'll give you another one. What can look like anger but is actually love? What can look like anger but is actually love? How about this one? What does everybody need but nobody likes? Did you get it? Well, thank you so much for sharing in such fashion that I couldn't make out a thing you said. Did you say discipline? Oh, you could leave early. <laughs> this is the right answer. Discipline, folks, everybody needs it. Nobody likes it. Tonight, in our study in the book of Hebrews, we've been calling it the letter of better. Let's talk about a discipline that is far better than any other discipline imaginable. And to do this, we want to consult this specific text. It's Hebrews uh, chapter 12, beginning in verse 5. Hebrews 12, verse 5. Uh, I'd like to read this to you. Look, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. The writer of Hebrews is writing to Christians like you and I, children of God, in the midst of such hardship. They were being persecuted for being children of God. Shouldn't be that way, but that's exactly what the case was. Most didn't sign up for that. Most understood the blessings of following the Lord Jesus, rightly so, forgiveness and adoption into his family. But this seemed to be part of the package deal. They hated him. They hate those who identify with him. And they were experiencing at the time of this writing the very vicious hatred of those who are antagonized uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ and as a result by his kids. And when you find yourself in times like that where the hardships of life, the pains and suffering of life get to be a little overwhelming, there is a tendency, it's part of our human nature, to be distracted from what we should be remembering, but instead forget. And that is what was happening to these here. Painful circumstances. I think it happened to them. It could happen to us. Painful circumstances uh, can put the wrong thoughts in our minds and squeeze out the truth at a very desperate time when we need the truth more than ever before. So these Christians addressed here in Hebrews are experiencing hardships of various kinds. Now, they believe that God is. What's more, they believe that God is strong. In addition, they believe that God knows all things. And so this caused quite a riddle for them. God, if you're there, if you're strong, if you're able, if you're all-knowing, then you could have kept all of this pain from befalling us, yet you chose not to. You chose to allow it. It hurts. We grieve. We suffer loss and other things. You saw it coming. You could have averted all of it. You chose not to. And so that forced them to sort of solve the riddle through human wisdom 
because they forgot truth. And they may have been tempted, as you and I are prone, they may have been tempted to fill in the blanks with conclusions like this. God, you must have ceased to love me. That's what it is. God, what is it that I have done wrong? For surely I must have done something wrong. What am I doing to deserve all this pain, this loss, this suffering which I now experience? And God, if this is how you reward me for following you, maybe, just maybe, I ought to reconsider whether I want to continue following you. That's what was happening to these Hebrews. That happens to you and I even today. And so the writer, seeing these people experiencing these thoughts, because these people are experiencing pain, says, you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you, not as strangers, but as children, as sons. And what specifically is that exhortation which they have forgotten? Well, it's given here in verses 5 and 6. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges Every, every son whom he receives. They forgot that. That they forgot it implies they once knew it. You have to know something before you can forget that something. They knew this. How'd they know it? They heard of it from their own great ancient king Solomon. He wrote it. It's an excerpt from Proverbs chapter 3, specifically verses 11 and 12. They were Jews. Hebrews are Jews. They were well acquainted with the Psalms. In fact, many were committed to memory as part of their early tutelage as Jewish kids. But they forgot. How? How could they forget? Pain does it, you say. Pain, suffering, loss, hardships, trials make you forget what you really should remember. And what they should have remembered is the essence of this quotation, namely, my son, don't take this lightly. Don't give up. You see, those whom I love, I discipline. Now, we've got to get this word discipline correctly defined because the first thing that comes into our minds Typically, when we hear the word discipline, is punishment for wrongdoing. That's not exactly what's in view here. The word really has to do with all those things brought to bear on the training of a child whom you love. In fact, punishment is not really part of it at all. God does not punish his kids for their wrongdoing because God has already sufficiently punished his only begotten child for all of his children by faith. Punishment doesn't happen for the children of God anymore. Listen, if you're not a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, you are not under God's loving discipline. You are indeed under God's wrath and judgment. But if you're one of his by faith, you are not going to be subject to his punishment. Now, 
even if his discipline is directed to a specific area of sin which you, one of his kids, have committed, still the discipline he applies is not to punish. It is to correct. It is to shape. It is to mold. It is to warn. It is to steer. When God judges you, that's because you're not his child. When God lovingly disciplines you, that's because you is his child, you see? Discipline speaks of child-rearing. All that goes into it, instruction and warning and guidance and correction and all these things designed, oh, no, not to crush, but to cultivate growth and development in the life of the child whom the, in this case, heavenly parent so dearly loves. But those readers in the first century suffered from the same malady we do. They had a belief, it's a false belief about suffering, which suggested to them all suffering is a sign of God's displeasure directed towards the one who suffers. That child of yours who's afflicted is afflicted because of God's displeasure, you see? The cancer you are wrestling against is there because you have God's displeasure. You see it? Can I use a big phrase? It's called the doctrine of retributive justice. You may not know the term, but you may be living by it. It says, if I do bad God will do bad to me. So if bad comes my way, the only explanation is that I must have done bad. Can you see this? It's a terrible, terrible, false way of it's not true. In fact, the opposite of, true, of it is true. If you're a Christian, God's discipline, if you're a Christian, stems from his love for his children, not his displeasure, his love for his children. Now the readers are hurting, and in their pain, they have forgotten something found in Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12, and it is simply this. Divine discipline is an evidence, not of divine displeasure, but of divine love. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. That's what the text says. I want to tell you something interesting. Interesting to me. Maybe you'll find it boring. Let's find out. In Proverbs 3, before you get to verses 11 and 12, uh, you read verses 9 and 10. That's how it's supposed to be. Verses 9 and 10 say this. Honor the Lord from your wealth. So the subject of the previous verses, two verses 11 and 12, is prosperity. It's talking about wealth. Honor the Lord from it and from all your produce so your barns will be filled with plenty. That's prosperity. And your vats will overflow with new wine. And then hot on the heels of these two verses on prosperity, you have verses on how God uses adversity as a form of discipline to mold and shape and correct those children of his whom he loves. Folks, if you're prosperous materially, financially, Wonderful, that is a blessing. And you surely can insinuate from it that you are connected to God. But there's no doubt about this. If you're experiencing adversity at the hands of a loving God, that is more proof 
of your connection to him as father than if you're merely prosperous. Now, today we're hearing a lot of theology about prosperity, prosperity. The Bible speaks more about adversity because, frankly, it's of more value. You know what David said? It's good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn thy statutes. Before I was afflicted, says he, I went astray. You see, the ministry of adversity might be more evidence of your connectedness to Almighty God than the experience of prosperity. So, so, so they were not familiar with my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Now, how could you do that? How could you regard God's discipline lightly? Let me suggest uh, a few ways. If you believe the diagnosis you just received, the job you just lost, the bad news you just received with regard to a family member, whatever it is, if you believe that's due to the cruel winds of fate, it's just a surprise, it's just whimsy, it's just bad luck, then you are regarding lightly the discipline of the Lord through it. What do I mean? You are essentially saying to God, you don't run the universe any longer. It's just this nebulous chance, whimsy, fate, accident which befalls me. But that's not true. If you are a child of God, you are under his watch care forevermore. Nothing comes your way that escapes his notice. Nothing takes place by accident. You're not subject to the cruel winds of fate. You're subject to the tutelage of a sovereign God seated on the throne who can use all things for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So that's one way you can take the discipline of the Lord lightly. You could redefine it. You could fail to see his hand in it. Here's a second way you could take it lightly. You could see his hand in it but not as a loving hand. In fact, you could see his hand more as a fist designed to crush you, not to correct you and cultivate growth in you, but as a fist to destroy you. And if you do that, you see, you're also taking the discipline of the Lord lightly. You see his hand in it, but you don't see his hand to be a hand of love. And here's a third way in which I think you could take the discipline through hardship of the Lord lightly. It's to do what the text says. It is to faint when you are reproved by him. What does that mean? It doesn't mean to be unaffected by the hurts of life. It means to, it means to lose hope in future life. It means to see no potential for good in what you're presently going through. In fact, it means it means to labor under the misconception that you have been abandoned by God. It's just despair. There's no rhyme nor reason to it. You faint under the crushing load of what hurts you because God, because of your pain, has been removed from the formula. There is no good. There is no orchestration by a good God. I have no longer any future. I am hopeless. Don't do that. Don't do that. You see, 
Verse 6, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Not those whom he has abandoned, and he scourges every son whom he receives. But wait, you might say, doesn't God love everyone? No, surely not the same way. Do you have children, grandchildren? You don't love other people's children and grandchildren the same way you love your own, do you? Nothing to be ashamed about. You know, I remember when my boys were young and they would played sports, I could pick them out on the field. I had no interest in any other little kid not having a good experience, but mostly I wanted, I wanted mine to. I didn't have contempt for the others, by no means. Might have even had affection for someone else's kids. I don't know. But I had a special love for mine. I was cheering for them in my heart more than any. How much more God? No, he doesn't love all the same way. He loves those whom he has redeemed in a very, in a very, very special way. And he shows it by intense interest in using even the throes of life, the storms of life, to enhance our growth, our development, and our communion with him. Now, I want to make a parenthetical statement. If you have grown with an abusive father, and I know for sure there are at least some here who have, how do I know that? Because statistics bear this out. Many, many have suffered abuse at the hands of the one you should have been able to trust the most, but have been unable to. If you have suffered abuse at the hands of a father, biological or stepfather, I just want to uh, authenticate your struggle and permit you to have to really work hard with the discipline of God. Because you may have a hard time seeing that the hardships in life which you are now experiencing could ever be used in a loving manner by this unseen heavenly father because your earthly father has been an abuser. So you may be tending to think heavenly father is the same. Now you're going to make it, not by sheer force of will. You're going to make it because your heavenly father is going to persuade you as you continue to walk with him that he's categorically different than any earthly dad, any of us have ever had. And let me offer this to you. No, the writer of Hebrews offers this to you. Look, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Now, in the original language, you see that word receives? It means whom he welcomes with open arms. It means whom he receives favorably. So, if you're one of God's kids, in spite of what your history, painful, though it may have been, is. You have already been received with joy, great welcome and enthusiasm by your heavenly Father. You already have his favor. Therefore, when you go through the hardships of life, he is not punishing you. He is shaping you just as a loving parent, perhaps the one you never had, just as a loving parent, is supposed to do for a child. Oh, he's not targeting you as a foe. He is using life's circumstances, even painful ones, to mold you 
as a child. And he does not target only some of his kids for discipline. He does not scourge some and not the others. Look, he scourges every son whom he receives. That means you're sitting around people and you're saying right now, I'm not like them. They are really godly. They are pleasing God and I am not. Maybe so. But this verse tells me even those who look godly and are really walking closely with God are still subject to the loving discipline of God. Therefore, they're not immune from the throes of life any more than you. He's not targeting you. He scourges every son whom he has already welcomed with open arms. So don't take lightly the intense, disciplinary, educative, maturing interest of your heavenly Father who has the capacity to make use even of terribly painful things for your good. Hurts, your hurts are not evidence that your God has ceased to love you. The argument continues in verse 7. It's for discipline that you endure. Look, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? I know there are many, but this is the way it's supposed to be. What child is there who does not receive discipline from his father? And God's, the father, God's discipline is evidence that you are his you may come to the conclusion when going through painful times, I'm on the outs with God. The opposite is true. It's evidence that you belong to him. It's evidence that you're his. And children crave, do you know this? Children crave this kind of discipline, which is why the Bible says if you ever wake up one day and choose to hate your kid, then don't use the rod. Just stop spanking them, and they'll grow up thinking, you don't care. Hey, could I tell you something personal? Well, I'm going, I'm going to. <laughs> so I grew up with an alcoholic father. That's not a good thing. And I used to hang out on the street in New York. Home wasn't a comfortable place, so you hang out on the street. I was a little kid, so I'm hanging out with other kids. I remember one day we came up with the idea, hey, let's sleep out tonight, outside, urban camping. <laughs> and we, we did this from time to time. We actually slept on a church roof. It was a flat roof. It was a Methodist church. Thank you, Methodist people. <laughs> and we would climb up on the, on the flat roof of this Methodist church. We'd just sleep out at night. So I remember some of the kids saying, oh, man, that'd be cool. Let's oh, I got to check with my dad, one said. Oh, I got to ask my dad. Oh, I can't give you an answer yet. My dad's not home yet. I remember thinking, oh, my goodness. I don't have to check. My dad's home in an altered state of consciousness. My dad's probably dead drunk lying on the floor right now at home. <laughs> and I remember, the, I remember the kids saying, Stuart, you got to check with your dad? No, said I. He doesn't care. And I remember, I remember my friend saying, oh, that is so cool. They were jealous of my situation. Oh, no. I craved theirs. A dad whose hands 
would guide and correct and discipline and set bounds and say, go this way, don't go that way. Are you kidding me? Kids crave that. I didn't get it from my dad. Don't feel sorry for me. I get it every day from my heavenly dad. He tells me how to live. Give me a whole book on how to live life. You got the same thing. Read it sometime. <laughs> and he corrects me when I go astray. And he spanks me when I need it, so to speak. And he shapes me up and changes me so I look more and more like him all the time. God and son. Well, the son has to resemble the father, right? So, 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 so. Don't come to the wrong conclusion. Look, verse 8. If you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. A parent disciplines his or her own children. Have you ever been tempted to spank somebody else's? Don't do it in Walmart. Do you get locked up for that stuff? You can only spank your own and doing it. Though it hurts that little kid, is proof that there's a parent-child connection. This is no different with God. Our Heavenly Father is engaged in the work of changing us, growing us up, developing us, maturing us, making us to be more like Him. And He can do it even through Cancer, unemployment. Kids on the run, name it. All the things that hurt us. All the things. He could do it. Those are not good things. He could use them for good. And when he does... It's proof that we are his. Furthermore, verse 9, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? Interesting phrase used with reference to God. Father of spirits. What does it mean? It's in contrast to our earthly fathers. They were the fathers, if you will, of our biological self. They birthed us. They had a role in birthing us. You see what I mean? They were the fathers of our Material, physical existence. But there's a father of our spirit. And by the way, that's our essential self. Did you know that? The body doesn't last, for crying out loud. But the spirit does. The father of our spirits is the Lord Jesus Christ who birthed spiritual life in us. And so this verse is just logical. It's just saying if we respected those who are simply our earthly fathers, just birthing us biologically, how much more respect should we pay to the father of spirits who has regenerated us so that as spirit beings, we will be fit for eternity. That's what it's saying. Verse 10, they, our earthly parents, disciplined us for a short time. How long? Just until you're a teenager. That's it. Then you're on the run. You know how that is. They disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he, the father of spirits, disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. So you see two limitations on parental discipline. One, it's temporary, and two, it's flawed. 
Sometimes parents over-discipline, sometimes they under-discipline. Have you ever been in Walmart when some little kid is stuck in the toy department? His mama wants to take him home. He's not cooperating. She says, if you don't come right away, I'm going to leave you here. We're going home without you. Now, why do you say something like that unless you mean it? Good night. If every time that was said, a mom or a dad actually followed through with it, Walmart would be filled with homeless kids. Nobody does it. Why do you say stuff like that? That's an error in discipline. Your words are being devalued if you don't follow through. And on the other hand, sometimes we err because our discipline is too abrasive. I remember one time coming to church years ago. My three boys were in the back seat of the car, and they were carrying on. Something was going on, and this was wrong. I just got to tell you, I'm just a, a human. And I just one hand on the wheel, and the other hand was going to the back seat. And they used to put, they told me this now, the wise guys, they put their younger brother, he's a cop right now. Now I see why he's a cop, because he took all this abuse when he was a kid. They put him in the middle because they knew, Dad, your, your arm isn't long enough to get us if we are on the side. So my poor son, Ben, he was brutalized all through his childhood. So you see, we're, listen, we all make mistakes in our efforts to discipline our children, but God makes no such mistakes. He's right on target, isn't he? He knows what he has to do (laughs) when we do what we do. It's not too light. It's not too heavy. It's right on target. Why? In order to share his holiness. In essence, that says, in order to be like him, for God is holy. See? And then verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet... To those who've been trained by it, afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So you have a short-term aspect of discipline. Short-term, it hurts. You have a longer-term aspect of discipline. It yields fruit. For whom? Those who have been trained by it. See the word trained in the original language, Greek? Want to hear what it says? It's the word gymnazo. Gymnazo. Gymnasium. It's the word from which we get the word gymnasium, place of athletic training. An athlete goes to a gym to work out, to train. They sweat, they ache, they groan, they make, sometimes they pull a muscle, they do all kinds of stuff. Why do they do it? Because it produces, in theory, physical fitness. So do the spiritual training. Our Father provides for us. It hurts now. But for those who've been trained by it, it will produce ultimately rest. The kind of peaceful rest that comes from being right with God. See, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The kind of rest that comes from being in sync with God. This is a good verse for us. I'll tell you why. It permits us to cry. Look, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Thank you, God. When you lose a loved one, when you lose productivity, when you lose income, whatever it is, to put on a happy face seems to me odd, unusual, unreal, a lie. God knows that. He says it isn't joyful. It's sorrowful. What do you do when you have sorrow? You cry. You could even cry out to God. But through the tears, through the complaints, 
through the expression of emotion, please try not to take lightly the loving discipline of God, even through it, for your ultimate good. See, for those who've been trained up by it. Now, the prosperity that God may grant us from time to time is surely a blessing, but I think the adversity he allows to come our way from time to time may, in fact, be more of a blessing because our big problem really is our quest for autonomy from God. It's our quest for independence. It's our quest for self-sufficiency, self-esteem, self-reliance. Prosperity won't help cure that. It feeds it. But I think adversity could be the solution, really. It can show us our profound need for him. So let me close with a biblical story that illustrates this. It's in Genesis 32. You know it. I just want to apply it to the text here. It's about Jacob. He had an older brother, Esau, who deserved the birthright through deception, Jacob got it. Esau got mad to such extent that he wanted to kill his brother. His brother Jacob had to flee, leave the land, and did so, separated from family for many, many years. After a number of years, he's returning home, but he still fears Esau's response, especially since he heard that Esau, his brother, is coming to him with hundreds of people with him. So Jacob worked out a multi-phased plan to appease his brother. First, he sent him gifts, you know, tried to buy him off. Then he divided all he had, flocks and herds and people, everybody, into two camps, saying if Esau attacks one, the other may flee and survive. Then what he did, he took goats and rams and camels and donkeys and all of his stuff and sent them to Esau in a a staged procession with distance between each group. And he was intending to put himself at the back of it all so that by the time he came upon Esau, Esau's anger towards him may be appeased by all these good things he received. Jacob is intensely self-reliant, intensely self-sufficient, intensely independent of the God he knew. And so he sent every animal, every person, even every member of his own family across a certain river called the river Jabbok so as to meet Esau. And the text says, then Jacob was left alone, totally apart from everything he had accumulated, earned by his own wit and wisdom, everything he had depended upon, no resources of his own to lean on. He must have hated this. Yes, we hate that, but God had him right where he needed to be. And God has us sometimes in this situation, empty of resources we can rely on for a reason. And a man, the text in Genesis says, wrestled, a hand reached out at night, must have shocked him. A man wrestled with him until day, a man, subject for another day. I think it was the God-man, Jesus, pre-incarnate, but that we could argue that another day. A man wrestled with him until daybreak. The battle went on all through the night, and the text says, when he saw he, the 
one wrestling with Jacob. When he saw he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. I'm no doctor, but I'm told that's one of the strongest parts of the human anatomy, the socket of the thigh, so that the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Folks, God loves us so much, he is willing on the short term even to dislocate our plans, our lives, our bodies. Because he wants our heart. And therefore, he uses many things to move us from self-reliance to dependence on him. Jacob needed God's ministry of dislocation. He needed to be weakened in an area of strength. Doesn't that remind you of the words of Paul? And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And back to the text in Genesis, it says, he said, let me go. The one wrestling with Jacob said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he, Jacob, said, I won't let you go unless you bless me. So some would say, clearly, that can't be the Lord. It can't be an angel of the Lord, because look at he couldn't evade Jacob's grasp. Oh, no, they miss it. He was wrestling with God, but that's exactly the position God wants to be put in. He wants to bring us to a point where we're so emptied of self-resource and reliance that we grab onto him. We're no longer wrestling with him. We're clinging to him for dear life. We're saying, oh God, I'm on empty. Would you take care of me? Would you fill me? Oh God, I don't want to rely on myself. I want to express sheer and utter dependence on you. And God says, welcome home. I'm your father. Don't you see? Don't you see? The text says when the sun rose, Jacob crossed that same river, but different than before. It says he was limping on his thigh. He was limping. Here comes Esau. Jacob couldn't confront him any longer. He was limping. Jacob couldn't confront any challenge in his own strength any longer. Can you see why a loving God disciplined his son Jacob? It was to produce in him the peaceful fruit of sheer and utter dependence on him. And nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. So, my fellow Christians, we're in this together. We dare not take lightly the discipline of Almighty God. It comes from a loving hand, desirous of freeing us of self-dependence, self-reliance, and all the rest, freeing us to enter into his loving arms, experiencing the peaceful fruit of confident trust in him until the time when our eyes behold that our eyes of faith did not let us down. We see Jesus and we say, I'm glad I trusted you. I wish I would have trusted you more. 
So my fellow children of God, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. So we thank you, O oh God. Many of us have parentage experiences in which we have felt ignored, neglected, and abandoned, and yet your eye is upon us and your loving hand there to mold us and shape us and conform us into your image. Oh, God, thank you for your interest in how we live, the evidence being you use even the throes of life to help us to cling to you for blessing. Like Jacob, put it in us to say, oh, God, I will not let you go. I need your blessing. Thank you for demonstrating that we are your sons and you are our father. Specifically through the throes of life used to usher us into closer, more rich, more passionate, more necessary communion with you. Oh God, you don't need it. But something in us wants to say, we trust you. Have your way, Heavenly Father. Have your way. Discipline us. Train us as you see fit so that we too would cling to you for blessing. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.